from the cowardice that dares not face new truth, from the laziness that is contented with half-truth, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth. Good Lord, deliver us. Amen. It's hard to believe it's been a decade and a half since September 11th. It's hard to believe that ninth graders starting high school this fall were not even born on September 11th. For those of us who do remember the events of the day, those images are seared upon our mind's eyes. Image of planes going into the Twin Towers. Images of jumpers in desperation. Images of firefighters sifting through the rubble, hoping to find life. It was a day where our world changed. We will never think the same about religious extremism or national security or what it means to be a true hero. 3,000 lives, more than 3,000 lives, were lost on that day in New York, in Washington, D.C., and on a field in Pennsylvania. And of those 3,000 lives that were lost, 1,100 have never been found. Their bodies have not been found. In the Twin Towers alone, 40% of those who perished have not been found. Not even on a trace level. And given the number of lives lost, lost in every possible sense, it seems almost callous that the Gospel text today is one that proclaims lost and found. Jesus, in fact, makes his point three times. He talks of metaphors and he explains the way that there is a lost sheep that is found. And then there is a lost coin that is found. And then there is a lost son, the prodigal son, who is found, insisting again and again and again that in God's version of the story, what is lost is certainly found. How do we reconcile this? How do we hear this when we know there are so many children and parents and colleagues and friends who have not been found? Even if you weren't alive on September 11th, it's not in your memory, you know of other tragedies where what is lost has not been found. In recent history, we can think of the Malaysian Flight 370 vanished. 219 Nigerian schoolgirls kidnapped. We think of homes in South Louisiana devastated. We think of Lives and dancers at the Pulse nightclub in Florida massacred. We know loss. We humans don't even have to turn on the TV to experience and know the headlines that tell us of loss. We know loss in our own lives, in our relationships, where we found lost loved ones, 
Lost dreams, lost hopes, lost jobs, lost finances, lost goals. We know loss. And yet we have these words of the gospel that say, what is lost is found. How do we make sense of this if this has not been our own experience? If this has not always been the case, how can we reconcile the words of the gospel with what we have seen in our own lives to be the case? I think the first thing we have to do is recognize that which is lost, sometimes that which is lost cannot do anything to be found. You know, sometimes when we look at Luke 15, we're very fast to get to the prodigal son story. We all love the prodigal son story. It's very relatable. We all can relate to one of the characters in it. And I think perhaps, maybe just because we're Americans, we just love the fact that there was a choice that this lost son went awry somewhere in his ways and in his actions, and that at some point he realized the error of his ways and chose to repent and to come back home. And we love that initiative, that that repentance, that turning, and that he did that and he came back home. We can wrap our minds around it. And because I think we love that story so much, we're quick to jump over these first two stories that the lectionary selects for today. And it's interesting, in these two stories, no such choice was made. The first story is about a lost sheep. Now, if a sheep goes off and becomes lost, it's in its nature to hide. It's not going to go and make sheep noises or wander around and look for the rest of the flock or the shepherd. It's going to hide. It's going to keep to itself. It's by its nature as an animal. It's not going to do anything to help itself be found. Similarly with a coin. If a coin goes lost, it's a coin. It's an inanimate object. It can't do anything about its lost status. It can't change or call out or repent or say, look, I'm over here. It's just a coin. And so we have this sheep and we have this coin. And we have this reminder that sometimes those things, those cases, those people, those situations that are most lost can do nothing to help themselves be found. On September 11th, uh, my sister was a student, an undergrad in Manhattan. She was a student at the New School, which is less than two miles from Ground Zero. And on that morning, she was fine. She hadn't even gone to class that morning. I was living in Boston, my parents were back here in North Carolina, and she wanted to let us know. But the cell phones were down. I don't know if it was because so many people were calling or cell service was out or airplanes. I don't know the reason why, but there was no cell service in New York on September 11th. And though she tried again and again and again to call us and say that she was okay, that she hadn't made it to campus that day, we didn't know. She couldn't. It was out of her control. The sad truth is, is sometimes those people and those situations and those cases can do nothing to let us know 
to help their case when they are lost. The other haunting thing, perhaps even more haunting, is the fact that there are times and there are cases that despite our best efforts, we can do nothing in our human abilities to help those who are lost. Those lost situations, those lost cases, those lost heartbreaks. The multinational search effort for the Malaysian Flight 370 was the largest and the most expensive search and rescue effort in all of history. It covered 23,000 square miles. It involved the expertise of people from Australia, China, India, Japan, Malaysia, New Zealand, South Korea, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The underwater search for that Malaysian flight alone cost $56 million. And yet now, September 2016, over two years later, the Malaysian, the disappearance of Malaysian Flight 370 remains a mystery. Everything was thrown at this effort, and yet it is still lost. There simply are situations where there are no human ways to resolve them. There's no technology advanced enough, no daylight long enough, no determination strong enough, no recovery program successful enough, no bank account big enough to be able to find that which is lost. But I do believe that there is good news here. In a serendipitous way, I believe that the lectionary speaks assuredly that when human efforts fail, God comes in. When the search and, and rescue efforts of humans have been called off and called to an end, that is exactly the point where God starts searching. And in this account, it makes the wonderful good news to tell us that what we can't find, God can find. God searches and God finds. What we can't recover, God can recover. What we can't redeem and we can't capture and we can't get to, God most assuredly can. This lectionary passage was selected in such a way to speak to the hearts today that are struggling with this loss and tell us that where we lack resources, God's resources are limitless. Where we don't have time or energy, God's time and energy never ends, and God will search every last moment until God can find what has been lost. That's our good news. That's our gospel. That's the word intended for our hurting hearts this morning. I think we tend to limit the meaning here of the lost and found parables. We see them as very human stories. They talk about very ordinary metaphors. There's a shepherd, a common shepherd. There's a woman, likely a peasant woman. 
and we, we think that these are just human, they're very relatable. Jesus goes to the Pharisees and, you know, basically says, if you were one of these, wouldn't you act in this way? And we tend to think of them in such human ways that they're often preached to say that, that we humans should read these stories and we should be inspired to go out and find the lost and seek those who are the one. And, and that's well and good, but I think that makes it a little narrow. Because when I read the passage, the images here aren't merely about humans. To me, they feel divine in nature. If you can expand your mind a bit to see the metaphors, to see the way that we have this, this shepherd who goes and he leaves the 99 sheep. I mean, those are his livelihood. And it says in the NRSV that it's that he leaves those sheep in the wilderness. That's risky. Leaving all those sheep so they can go and get that one. Leaving everything that's going to feed his family and give him a profession and a calling and a role in society. He's willing to leave and take that risk and go get that one. I don't know many humans that would do that. But God is a God who will take that kind of risk. God is a God who will risk his only son in order to search for every last person, including us. Then we have the story about the woman. I love the story. I can't help but love stories where there's a woman image for God. But we have this, this account of a woman who turns a light on, or finds a lantern and lights a lamp, who sweeps a floor, who carefully looks over every single inch so that she might find that one little coin that she has lost. And then when she does, she throws a party. Now, you have to expect party cost a good bit more than that one little coin. We humans wouldn't do that. We wouldn't go through all that effort to find it and then basically waste it and throw it on a party for our friends. But God would, because that's the kind of God we follow, a God who is so abundant and reckless in God's love for us and God's ability to search and to find. I think we also tend to squeeze, to limit, to condense this text. We see it as about sinners and tax collectors, as the ones that in those times, those ages, the Pharisees would look at with just utter disgust. The ones who the Pharisees just couldn't understand that Jesus would actually welcome, would embrace. The word here is very physical. I mean, it's like Jesus actually did physically embrace these tax collectors and sinners and, and let them eat at his table. And so we see it as just the story about these, these people at that time, those tax collectors and the sinners, and how, how Jesus brings them in. Those are the lost that Jesus finds. But others look at this text and they say, you know what? The Pharisees are really the ones who are lost. The Pharisees are similar to the older brother and the prodigal son in the next story, the ones that are so self-righteous that they won't bother to come to the party. They'll miss out on the fun and on the celebration because they're just so sure 
that they are right. And if we can open the text to say it's not just tax collectors and sinners, maybe it's Pharisees who are lost, I think there's enough room to open it further and say it's all who are lost. It's the lost sheep. It's the lost coin. It's the lost son. It's the lost Pharisee. It's the thousands and thousands who've been lost and victims of tragedies and addictions and heartbreaks and families that have been fractured and so mind and mental and emotional issues and so many things that plague all of us in our society. It's all lost. And God says, not to me, that God will search and God will find. We limit this story as well in how we see the celebration. We see it in just the metaphor sometimes. We see it as just that those in the stories are coming together with their friends and their neighbors and celebrating, that the shepherd is just bringing together his buddies, or that the woman is just bringing together her neighbors, or that the father is just bringing together those people who live near him so that they might celebrate. But I love when you look back on this text and you look really closely at the way that the party that's had in the metaphors, the celebrations that are talked about in these biblical times, are, are reflected on a heavenly scale. It says there will be joy in heaven when the lost are found. Specifically, it talks about the presence of the angels who will be rejoicing when the lost have been found. It is this timeless assertion that in every situation, in every case, in every time, in every era, whether it be the first century ancient Near East or whether it be 2016 in Raleigh, North Carolina, there is celebration and joy and angels singing high because God is able to seek and search and go that extra mile and is able to find. It is a gift to be able to open this lost and found text and read it in ways that are so divine and so redemptive and such a gift. And as we do so, we're able to see the way that this is, a, this is something to be celebrated. That we, are, we see an ending, God sees the beginning. You know, churches across the United States today are, are trying to grapple with how to both honor the memory of those who were lost on September 11th, and at the same time, preach good news. Many liturgies, many songs, many sermons are trying to do this in a number of creative ways as we, as a faithful body, try to hold these two in tension together and be a people that ultimately profess hope. And I was struck by one image. It was one from Gum Springs, Virginia, a church there. And I'm going to ask Chip to put it on the screen. And back in the spring, the pastor and the church leaders challenged the members of the congregation to make a paper crane or an origami dove for each life that was lost on September 11th. 
They wrote the name upon each one of those, and you see, constructed them. And this morning, when the members of that church come into worship, I don't even think a sermon needs to be preached because it's in the air. The assertion that what is lost has been found. It's transcendent. It's beautiful. It speaks of these lives that we grieve but are eternally at rest, peaceful, whole, surrounded by joy. What was lost here on earth is found in heaven with God. Glory to God. Amen.